You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, guys. Thanks for coming out. I know it's 4th of July. It's a busy weekend. Um, And... We pray that God is with our brothers and sisters who are out on the road traveling, especially during the 4th of July holiday. We're going to take a, a short break, the meeting short this Sunday from Ephesians. We'll go back into Ephesians next Sunday, but if you got your Bible, open it up to 3rd John. Not John 3, 3rd John. Now, does anyone know, well, I'm, I'm not big at asking questions during church, but what distinguishes 3rd John from every other book of the Bible? Anybody know? Except for Joe, because I told him the answer before worship. <laughs> It is the shortest book in the Bible. The shortest book in the Bible. And the second shortest book of the Bible is 2 John. Uh, Joe pointed out earlier that uh, the passage he opened up with before worship was actually longer than 3 John. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the passage. Uh, When I listened to it this morning on my Dwell app, it was about two minutes long. So not long at all. Let's hear God's word and then we'll get into the text. 3 John. Now, if you're wondering where that's at in your Bible, go to Revelation. That's the last book in the Bible. Then go the other way. You'll get to Jude and then 3 John. Here's God's word. The elder to the beloved Gaius. You want to know who Gaius is because we're going to talk a lot about Gaius. Whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved. Second time we've seen that word, beloved. It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, that is Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephus, that word's pronounced in many different ways, even according to my Dwell app, but I'm going to say Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I, if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. And he also stops those who want to put them out of the church. Beloved, it's the third time we've seen that. Verse 11, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Home stretch here. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be with you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you all can go home and say you read through a book of the Bible. (laughs) Well, there's a lot going on in this short book, and we're going to talk about some of it in the next few minutes. But I want to approach this passage posing this question, because we were introduced to several figures, right? We got this guy named Gaius, who I pointed out, and Demetrius, and Diotrephus. Here's the question. Who is worthy of imitation? Who is worthy of imitation? Even kids can ask this question. Who is worthy of imitation? When I was in junior high, um, I wanted to imitate Michael Jordan. Like, if you grew up here, like around, you know, 35 and older, we all know Michael. You guys think LeBron James? No. Michael Jordan's the GOAT. End of story. And I wanted to imitate him. I loved basketball. And it seems like a joke now, right? <laughs> but when I was in junior high, no basketball player was worthy of more imitation than Michael Jordan, at least from his skills. Youth basketball players all across the country at many different YMCAs and gyms tried to mimic his crossover dribble and his 15-foot fadeaway jump shot. No one else could do it. Michael Jordan could, and everyone else thought they could do it, and they tried to imitate Michael Jordan. You know, even when I got into college, right before college, so after junior high and high school, I wanted to imitate my older brother, Raj, another basketball player. He, um, he was an all, all-state basketball player at Wallert in Dubuque, and then he was an all-American basketball player, really good. And because I loved basketball, I again wanted to be like someone else. Couldn't be like Mike, but what about the guy who's related to me? We have the same blood. Can I be like him? Is he worthy of imitation? Today, I look at older men who love Jesus, who have raised kids older than my own, who have gone through trials that still awaits me. They love Jesus and they're following Jesus. You know, I think to myself, what ways can I imitate that person? It's not unusual, it's even natural and even biblical to imitate others. Paul says this in Philippians. Brothers, join me, this is Paul, join me in imitating, join in imitating me, excuse me, that's what Paul's saying, imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul makes similar statements all throughout his epistles and we need to ask, who should we imitate? Today's passage gives us some insight into the answer. So enter 3 John. 3 John, like I said, is the shortest book in the Bible, but it packs a punch. I think if you're hearing me read and you're watching with your eyes, a lot is being said in, what, 15 verses? 3 John is the intersection of several ideas. We read about the importance of truth, right? The necessity of supporting those who are missionaries, and we are called to imitate those types of people. 3 John is written to an individual in the local church, We saw his name. His name is Gaius. But Gaius isn't the only person mentioned in this letter. We read that there's a conflict in 3 John. (laughs) And uh, John, the author, is not afraid to name names. The crux of John's message is in verse 11. Here's the verse. Beloved, should be shocked by this, beloved, imitate good. Imitate good. Everything said in this short letter turns on this phrase. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. If that's the case, then we have to do some digging and figure out what is the good? And what is the evil? 
And so it's these three words that I will use to frame the next few minutes. I'll move through through this book by following the moments John tells Gaius that he is beloved. So if you're looking at your Bible, we read the word beloved in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, and verse 11. Each time John says to Gaius, you are beloved, he kind of begins a new thought. He's like, beloved, then I got something else to say to you. To be honest, I want you to hear the same affection for me this morning, but more importantly, that kind of affection from God. He says, beloved. If you're in Christ, he says, hey, you, beloved. I got something to say to you. So beloved is not a throwaway introductory word. It's not Christianese. It actually has significant meaning. And even here in, in the root of beloved is the word love. So certainly there's meaning behind that as well. John uses this word to express love, his affection for his dear friend Gaius. And what we are going to see this morning is that being a part of the beloved and imitating good is marked by a passion for seeing the gospel advance, to see the good news of Jesus Christ go to places that it has not gone before. Now here's the first instance of beloved. Let's just get right into the text. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So if you're familiar with John's writing, so think the gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. You see uh, particular word images used all the time. In particular, we see love, truth, and light. They're constantly being repeated. And in this one verse, we have two of these three themes. John loves his friend Gaius in what? The truth. There's a foundation there. This also says John's love for Gaius is built upon the truth of what? Christ. Love is going to hold sway. The truth will hold sway. John can't forget that. Guys can't forget that. And we can't forget that. This love is built upon something. And so in verse 2, John emphasizes again, Beloved, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you. I want you to love to receive a letter like that. I pray all may go well with you. That you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. He continues, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to, to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Now, we can begin to see already who is worthy of imitation. John does call him a child, but that's a term of endearment, affection, affection, suggesting John's evangelistic and pastoral ministry directly influenced Gaius and this particular local church where Gaius was apparently some type of leader. It says he was an elder. John feels a personal burden and joy to know how this little church is doing spiritually. What is unique in these verses is John's prayer for Gaius. John prays, that's verse 2, for the physical health and spiritual health of Gaius, which seems to, to suggest on some level that Gaius' physical health could have been failing. And John knew this. That was very, something very specific he was praying for on his behalf. But we, we don't know all the details, but John goes out of his way to express his concern through prayer. And so this kind of points to the relationship between John and Gaius. His knowledge for Gaius, his prayer for Gaius, justifies the repeated use of the word, what we see again, beloved. So John has kind of given him a specific commendation to Gaius, revealing further his appreciation for the work he has done on behalf of God. 
The commendation is in verses 5 to 8. And then in verse 9, John pivots to explain this, this stark contrast. <laughs> Be this guy, not that guy. Be this guy, <laughs> not that guy. It's in these two biographies where we see uh, the, the contrast between imitating good and imitating evil. So let's first see why John commends Gaius, and then we'll see what he warns him from. Here's the next beloved, verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing for you, for all of your efforts for these brothers, everything you do for these brothers, these strangers as they are. Strangers are coming into, crossing paths with the church, and Gaius is like, I got them. I'll take care of them. I'll watch over them. Let's stop there for a moment so that I can tell you exactly why John commends Gaius. He is showing an exceptional amount of hospitality to people he does not know. But what he does know about these people is that they're all about the gospel. They're all about proclaiming the gospel. And if you're about that, the guy says, hey, here's my front door. It's wide open. There's the food. There's the pantry. Fridge is over there. Bed's over there. What else do you need? He doesn't personally know these people. John even says they're strangers. <laughs> that he's invited them into their home and in their church. By asking them into his house, Gaius cared for physical needs. He also joined them as they spiritually celebrate who God is. I would imagine others in the church, because Gaius is like setting the precedent here, others in the church were like, yeah, we want to do the same. We want to join in. In verse 5, John points to the faithfulness of Gaius, and his passion demonstrated the commitment of Gaius to see the gospel advance by caring for these like traveling teachers, or these traveling evangelists or missionaries. You know, I've had, I've had the privilege of, to travel all around the world. And uh, since planning church, that's totally backed off. But before that, man, I was gone a lot, and I loved it. But here's what I always noticed about the times I've traveled. The places like Afghanistan, Uganda, right? Uh, Zambia, Bolivia. Is that on the plane ride home, I always reflected on how I was cared for by people who hosted me. <laughs> like I go there to bless and I walk away and I'm like, I received a lot more blessing than I gave. They cared for me so well. A stranger, they didn't know me. We were pen pals. They knew that I was a follower of Jesus Christ, and I wanted to help in any way I could, and they just extended so much hospitality. It is clear that the care Gaius extended to these traveling strangers was exceptional. So exceptional that these strangers went back to John's local church to tell him about the love Gaius extended to them. They're just blown away, like this dude just cared for us. I mean, what better picture of the body of Christ is there than that? We talk about practically living it out. I mean, if I could pause for a moment, we're, we're very risk-averse in America. Like, everything's insured. <laughs> Everything. Very risk-averse. And I'm, I'm not even saying that's a bad thing, you know. But here, it's like, I don't know you, but I know that you love Jesus, and I'm just going to let you in. That's a, that's a different way to think. It's a different way to live. And, and I think if, if I could move the needle a little bit, I'd want to move a little bit more that way. Take a little more risk, actually, in these types of situations for the sake of the gospel. Instead of always being protected or, or walled off. 
So I want to ask a specific question, not only for the Christian church in general, but this local church. Why is it necessary and biblical that we pray for, spend time with, and give our resources to those who are going out in the name of Christ? In particular, I'm thinking about missionaries. Verses 7 and 8 provide some insight. For they have gone out for the sake of the name. If you've tracked with us in the book of Acts, for the sake of the name, that language is used over and over in Acts, the name being Jesus. And they accepted nothing from the Gentiles, it says in verse 7. Therefore, because they're not accepting anything from the Gentiles, we need to make sure we take care of them. So I have a few thoughts why the local church needs to be the primary support for those who go out to share the gospel. First, there's a priority in supporting people who go out for the sake of the name. You know, the world is more connected than ever. Social media has certainly done that. The internet has done that. I can travel to China in less than, you know, 24 hours. I mean, 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago, couldn't even think of that. Take days, weeks. We're more connected than ever. I mean, I have have friends who are Christians who get jobs in other countries, not to be missionaries or evangelists, but because they want to experience a different culture, and that's fine. But the focus of what the church is called to support is very narrow here. We need to help individuals who go out with the primary purpose of telling others about Jesus. And these individuals, they like, don't receive traditional paychecks. John says these people accepted nothing from the Gentiles. John is using the word Gentile generically just to basically mean non-Christians. These missionaries did not receive money from non-Christians because it was the responsibility of local churches to support missionaries, church planners, as is the case for us, and anyone else who goes out to make Christ known to those who do not know Christ. John is, I think, giving really superior wisdom here. I mean, just think about it for a moment. What can happen if an outside non-Christian organization says, hey, we're going to give you some money? Do you not think there's going to be strings attached? Of course there is. Every time. And it seems to me, John's like, don't even go down that road. We'll, We'll support you. That's what God's calling us to do. John doesn't want those who go out for the name of Christ to have mixed interests. Can you imagine the kind of conflict like the United States government came to Sean Powers and said, hey, we're going to give you $200,000 to help your, help your church. Do you not think there'll be mixed interests? <laughs> that temptation surely is there. And John says, no. It only makes sense. The church is the source of care and support for missionaries. Just as Gaius was demonstrating, we cannot delegate this responsibility. The interest of the church is aligned with the person sent out in the name of Christ. So our support for missionaries, church planners, etc. happens while they are out and when they come back. Uh, There's a theologian named David Allen. He gets right to the point. And I quote, Gaius opened his heart, his home, and his hand to fellow Christian teachers, and we should do the same. That gets right to the point. And what is the rationale John gives for the church to support those who go out for the name? So that we can be fellow workers with them. That's a way we come alongside those who take the name of Jesus to places we do not go. That's a way we become a fellow worker. Here's how another commentator sums up verses 5 to 8. And I quote, John is talking about hospitality, but also financial giving. Send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Can be paraphrased, send them on their way with a generous gift. Pay for their plane ticket to travel and give them some money for their mission. 
are two ways that we might say it today. The idea here is that we, a part of this local church, are co-workers alongside missionaries. Just think for a moment the idea that John sets forth for us. We are fellow workers and co-workers. It's like working for a company and you go, you work, and there are other people in the office or maybe on the assembly line who are all trying to accomplish the same purpose. For example, if you work for a company that makes widgets, <laughs> the goal is to have the person working on the assembly line and the person working in management accomplish the same end goal, the production of widgets. Collectively, while roles, job descriptions, and titles might be different when you go to work, everyone is ideally moving into the same direction, trying to accomplish the same goal. So in our local church, this small local church, I want us to have an increased awareness. So I think it begins there for us. An increased awareness and an increased desire to partner in global missions. May there be a day when we throw our time, energy, prayer, and resources behind missionaries and other church planners. Our love for one another and our love for Christ cause us to be a part of the gospel of advancement. So, I'll use the word John's been using. Beloved. Right? Beloved. Let us not shrink back but press into gospel-minded, being gospel-minded and active and seeing the name and fame of Jesus go forth domestically. Could be right down the street or globally. You might not go to Bolivia, China, or the 1040 window or plant a church, but everyone can participate. Everyone should participate. If you want to imitate good, look to Gaius, a man from God who is on mission by caring for these traveling teachers. We should reflect on his example as he reflected Christ in his own life. So up to this point, John is positive, right? All good so far. Everything's happy. Well, something happens in verse 9. The tone changes. There's a problem that needs to be addressed. It's not a doctrinal problem, but a character problem. Sin created blinders to the advancement of the gospel. This is who we are not to imitate. Here's the first part of verse 9. I've written something to the church. We just stop there. It seems John previously wrote a letter to another church affiliated with John and Gaius, and the content of the letter was ignored. It's like you get that email, and like you pretend it's not there. <laughs> you just hit delete. <laughs> That's what kind of happened. The letter... It was not only missed, I think it was intentional. It was dismissed altogether. John continues to inform Gaius, here's that word, that guy's name, Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first. <laughs> That's Diotrephus. Does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing. That's verse 10, talking wicked nonsense against us. So we don't know much about Diotrephus, right? We do know he was part of a local church. We don't know if he was an elder or a prominent leader in the local church. Regardless, it's clear Diotrephus has become a problem. The book before, 2 John, if 2 John is about keeping heresy on the outside from getting into the local church, then 3 John tells us about a guy in the local church who is causing significant problems. In only two verses, we read of a sad digression in behavior in Diotrephus, prideful ambition, turned into pompous arrogance, which then led to perverse accusations. 
and then profane activity. Geotrephus created a toxic environment in his local church. What is the root sin of Diotrephus? Pride. Again, we're looking at what not to imitate here. His root sin seems to be pride. And some argue that that is the root of all sin. But certainly, it can't be argued here. Diotrephus was first and foremost about himself. Diotrephus loves himself some more Diotrephus. The Greek for putting himself first, verse 9, indicates Diotrephus wants to have authority or to control others. That's his game here. I want to control you. I want to have control in this local church. The sin in his heart had evil effects on the local church. His pride caused him to be an agenda-driven control freak. He was not on God's mission. Here's one way his prideful ambition was manifest in the local church. Diotrephus refused the wisdom, counsel, and established authority of John and Gaius. Like, just imagine with me for a moment. Let's say, um, before I planted the church, I'm still in Minnesota on a team of elders, and I'm like, hey guys, I don't want to plant a church in Des Moines. How about I go to that Caribbean island? Because the winter's up here, not too great. And the beach is down there, pretty awesome. Now, I would imagine someone would have been like, dude, I like you, but I think your desire to be in the Caribbean is not because you don't like winters, but it's just because you prefer beaches. <laughs> Trying to get out of something, aren't you? But if I begin to cut people out of my life then at that point because they disagree with me or slander them because they disagree with me, then there's a problem with my own pride, right? That's a Sean problem. If I said, I'm going to do whatever I like, Regardless of what you say, I mean, that's a Sean problem. Bottom line. It would be pride at work in my heart, especially if I buck against the people I have a relationship with in such an arrogant manner, right? That's what Diotrephus did with John and Gaius. John wanted local churches to support missionaries and therefore support the advancement of the gospel. And Diotrephus was like, no, I don't want to do it. I'm going rogue. Diotrephus is going to do whatever he wants. You get a sense from verses 9 and 10 that the issue at hand with Diotrephus isn't really about missionaries, but it's just a personal driven agenda that is rooted in what I already said earlier, pride. Now I can turn the life and actions of Diotrephus on myself. Certainly. I'm a man who's had to repent of pride. That is certainly the case. And I've asked myself this question because it's clear Diotrephus was a leader in some capacity in his local church. Is the ministry that I'm a part of defined by godly humility or ambitious pride? Right? That's a fair question. I mean, pastors got to put themselves to the test when they read God's word. Further, I don't want to conjure up a false or worldly humility. That's just hypocrisy. Oh, look at me. I'm so humble. I mean, that's just hypocrisy, right? I want godly humility. Godly humility through the work of the Spirit. So as I put myself to the Diotrephus test, a couple texts came to mind, which guard my, guards my heart against pride. And if you're anything like me, you battle pride on any level, here are several helpful passages that can protect you from becoming like Diotrephus. And you should, let's just listen to these. I'm talking about 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under what? The mighty hand of God. <laughs> you want to 
battle pride, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. What about Proverbs 8? Proverbs talks a ton about pride and humility. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. And here's a verse Diotrephus was clearly not considering. It's from Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but what? In humility, count others more significant than yourself. That'll help you battle pride. How can you know a church leader or anyone is striving to walk in humility, albeit not perfectly, right? We, we battle remaining sin. Well, in part, we can look at the life of Diotrephus and know what not to model. Like, don't be like Diotrephus. And we can look at the, guy, at the life of Gaius and say, yep, yep, that's the guy I'm called to imitate. He's doing the good. Unfortunately, there's more to the biography of Diotrephus. And at some point, he decided he knew what was best. And in his pride, he shut out missionaries that came to his church. He also kicked out folks in his church who wanted to support the gospel's advancement through the supporting of missionaries. Isn't that crazy? You want to support them? You want to support missionaries? I'm kicking you out. And as we've seen in John's commendation of Gaius, Diotrephus is doing the exact opposite. He's going rogue. He's trying to push his own agenda. And you know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I get that. But I have a hard time understanding how a man with presumably good theology, presents, prevents the advancement of the gospel by shutting out teachers, missionaries, and church planners. The Bible is radically mission-centered, if anything. Radically mission-centered. You can't turn the pages of the Bible without reading about God's mission to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. So, what does this tell me about the sin of Diotrephus? Pride blinded him from what matters most to God. That's what happened. Whatever his grievance against John and Gaius, Diotrephus became radically anti-gospel because of pride. May this just be a warning for all of us. May we never get so caught up in our own pride that we are blinded by what matters most to God. Diotrephus created a problem so bad, John tells Gaius that he might need to visit him to talk some more. We read that in verse 10. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. John's going to deal with it. He's going to come back, but I'm dealing with that guy. The literal translation for talking wicked nonsense is gossiping evil words. We see the manifestation of pride in Diotrephus. Here's another commentary. Sean Douglas O'Donnell, he chimes in and says, Against John and perhaps against Gaius and the brothers also, Diotrephus makes unjustified accusations or baseless charges. Diotrephus' tongue needs to be tamed before it sets the whole church on fire. What makes gossiping so evil and dangerous? Just ponder this for a moment. Christians serve a God of truth and God who is the truth. When a person participates in evil, gossip, or slander, the person engages in lies. I mean, listen to this. I mean, we all talk and speak and use words, so how we use our words matters. Think about James here. How great a forest is set ablaze by such small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Words, whether written in a Facebook post or spoken out loud, have power. The slandering tongue of Diotrephus was setting a church on fire. 
And obviously, as you've gathered now, Diotrephus is not a man worthy of imitation. So, let's just get this straight. Diotrephus is proud. His pride is evidenced by his unwillingness to respect authority. He doesn't support the advancement of the gospel. In his pride, he slanders John, Gaius, and effectively the church. If hearing about Diotrephus is getting you down, I do have good news for you. Just as Gaius is worthy of imitation, so is this man named Demetrius. And I'll end by talking about him briefly. Here's the final beloved for this morning. Verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And then in verse 12, he's kind of pops up out of nowhere. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. We do not know much about Demetrius, but here is what we can surmise from our passage. Demetrius is likely the letter carrier between John and Gaius, carried the parchment. And just as Gaius has cared for missionaries in the past, it's expected Gaius will care for Demetrius. John tells Gaius, Demetrius, he's one of us. He's all about the gospel. He's from the truth, meaning he's walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. So he tells him to receive receive him. So notice the flow of this short letter. Introduction, imitate Gaius. Next, don't imitate Diotrephus, and then imitate Demetrius. With these biographies, I think we can finally answer the question I posed at the beginning. What does it mean to imitate good? We know. Gaius and Demetrius are from God because they imitate, reflect, and refract God, language that I've been using more recently in Ephesians. They uphold the truth and are on God's mission, not their own mission. It is the good in them that we are to imitate. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's what's going on here in 3 John. Paul says, to the degree that I am looking to Jesus, following Jesus, imitating Jesus, you imitate me as well. So let's imitate those people who prioritize the advancement of the gospel and walk humbly before God. So, who are you to imitate? I encourage you to ponder that question throughout the rest of the day. For kids, thanks for hanging in there. You imitate your parents to the degree that they imitate Christ. You see the good in them, you imitate that. And we all have a pretty good idea of when we see evil. And we see that, we say no. We imitate Jesus. That's ultimately, at the end of the day, that's who we imitate. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.